There's so many places where mapping and data viz could really make a difference, but one I think that's been on people's minds a lot lately is socioeconomic inequality and racial disparities. Uh, there's such a rich history of people using maps to highlight these kinds of social issues. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. You just heard Betsy Mason, science journalist and co-author of the book All Over the Map, A Cartographic Odyssey, highlight the power of location intelligence to identify and respond to complex problems. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor lead this conversation on the many applications of data visualization in business, government, and society at large. Betsy, welcome to the Esri the Science Aware podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your recently published book, All Over the Map, which is exceptionally illustrated and filled with fascinating stories about how maps reveal much about ourselves, history, and so much more. But I do want to first ask you about your role as a science journalist and writer and the very important field of science communication. We're living in a moment when science is more important than ever, but it seems to be a controversial topic in ways that I would have never expected. What do you think is going on? What's happening right now during this pandemic is just really frustrating to me, both as a scientist and a journalist, and really as a citizen, where science is being ignored or undermined and just distorted in ways that are not in the best interests of public health. But I would say that science itself is not controversial. Sometimes the way that science plays out is portrayed as controversial, but it's really just scientists doing their best to understand the world. And what's happening right now is not new. It's just the latest example of something that's been going on for a long time, and that's people sowing mistrust in science for political, economic, some other interest other than the public health. And the pandemic is a pretty intense example of this, though, I would say, because it seems so clear that lives are on the line right now. They're being affected by trust or mistrust in science. And even with pandemics, this isn't new. The 1918 flu, there was lots of misinformation spread then. The government intentionally downplayed what was happening. They didn't want the country to look weak during the war. They probably also wanted to cover up some of their missteps. They didn't want people panicking. And even the name, the nickname for it, the Spanish flu, is misinformation. That our best guess is that it was started in the United States, not in Spain. So there's a lot of echoes to today. Is there something that citizens or business leaders can do differently to help scientists, scientific communicators like journalists, writers to spread the correct interpretation of what's going on? What can the rest of us do? The really unsatisfying answer is that people need to be more discerning about where they get their information about science. Uh, that's, you know, but that's really hard. And I think it's a big ask of a lot of people who've got a lot of things to worry about right now. But I think the real problem is that people are not getting their news from scientists or from trained science journalists, even from the appropriate scientists. There's so many sources of bad information and even disinformation dressed up to look like journalism and, and science. The good news is that there are still a lot of great science journalists on staff at some outlets, and there's a virtual army, I guess it really is virtual now, an army of freelance science journalists who are doing really incredible work right now. I don't think it's the best answer, but anything that can be done to help people understand what sources should be trusted and anything people can do to be more careful about what they get their information would be helpful. 
Let's turn to something that's a passion of yours. Uh, that's maps. You talk about the power of data visualization, whether it's a old fashioned map or a digital map. And in your book, all over the map, you open with our brains are built for maps. We humans are visual creatures. We need to picture something to really understand it. So today data is everywhere in business, government, nonprofit. So how does visualization of data enrich our understanding of issues and challenges? Like, and give some examples if you could. Yeah, you're right. We are just swimming in data these days. I mean, there's just more and bigger data. And I think this just means that data visualization is more important than ever to help us with just this enormous challenge. And I think there's two aspects of this. One is that visualization is a really powerful tool for actually understanding the data, for analyzing it. It's a way that we can reveal patterns that we wouldn't be able to see probably any other way. And sometimes for scientists, I think a lot about how scientists use maps, you know, visualizing their data in different ways can reveal things that they weren't expecting. It can lead them in new directions. It can be a really important part of the act of discovery and of the process of science itself. So I think that that's one really um, important aspect of data visualization. And then the other is the, the act of communicating what you found in the data, of, of representing it somehow. And visualizations are extremely helpful for this. Because like you said, humans are visual creatures. We can grasp some things in visual form in a much easier way than we could, or you know, maybe we couldn't even do it another way. One that comes to mind is this map that the New York Times did after the Notre Dame fire that showed the lead fallout around Paris. And they used this really cool 3D representation with yellow bars extending upward from the ground to show how much lead had been measured in each place in Paris. And then they made this sort of 3D flyover animation that was, it was really effective because you could see immediately where the levels were high and you could compare that readily with other areas. So it gave you a really good sense of the real intensity and extent of that problem. And the relative areas of contamination were really easy to understand in a way that I don't think that not having that kind of representation would have been able to do. Looking at the maps in your book, I find it to be uncanny of how many of the maps that you selected are from centuries ago and how they foreshadow the crisis we're experiencing today. For example, one of the maps that, that is called Cities versus Species, I think it's more recent, as you point out, but I think it's related to the 15th century situation. And you can tell us more about it, but it is so relevant today in our imperative to manage urbanization and conservation, balance economic environmental factors. So what does it tell us that, you know, here we are 500 years later wrestling with the same crisis, only much worse? That map is from 2017. It's this atlas that was inspired by the first modern atlas that was made by Ortelius in 1570. And part of the point of the people who made this map is that Ortelius's attitude toward the territory in his atlas was really kind of the European mindset of the time that nature is there for humans to conquer and profit from. And that basic mindset is pretty much continued to today. So after 500 years of us exploiting nature, that's gotten us where we are today. And so their work is an attempt to map out where urbanization, where this kind of attitude poses the greatest threat to biodiversity, you know, hopefully as a, a first step towards mitigating the problem. 
And it's really interesting when we were thinking about how would we promote this book? It's a lot of old stories. It's a lot of different stories. And I just thought there's something relevant to today in this book, like several things all the time, like you said, the, the pandemic and climate change and biodiversity and all these things. These are the kinds of things that cartographers have been grappling with for a very long time. Your book highlights two stunning environmentally themed maps. There's others as well, but the Grand Canyon and the Yellowstone were just two maps that jumped out at me. How do these and similar maps influence the important topic of conservation and the current thinking around actions to be taken to preserve our environment? I think the ones you're talking about, one of them is a, a sort of what you call a cartographic panorama of Yellowstone. Yellowstone is one of my favorite places on the planet, so I was really happy to include this. It's, it was made by a man named Heinrich Baran, and he sort of pioneered this style. It's kind of a oblique bird's eye view that looks a little bit like what you might see out of the window of a low-flying airplane. Um, and this one of Yellowstone was one of a set of four paintings that he did in the early 90s for the National Park Service. He also did Yosemite, Denali, and North Cascades National Park in Washington. I think the Yellowstone one is best, but <laughs> they were part of this campaign to promote the national park. So I'm sure that they were trying to engender those kinds of impulses towards nature. But I don't actually know what impact Baran's work had specifically on environmentalism, but I know the Park Service still sells those posters. And I imagine they must have made an impression on the people who saw them. They're just so beautiful. You mentioned that many of the maps in your book are quite relevant. Another one that caught my eye was a map that is, I think, from 19th century that attempts to show how neurons process and convey mm. information in the brain. Why did you choose this map? And it's quite different from, you know, depicting physical environments, which is a more traditional use of maps. Obviously, a, a, a map of the brain is a very different kind of map, but it is still mapping things in physical space and, and looking at their relationships. Yeah, those, those drawings were by a um, Spanish neuroscientist named Santiago Ramon y Cajal, and they're just really incredible and beautiful. Ever since the first time I saw them, I think it was actually in a neuroscience class, I was just really sort of captivated by them. So what's cool about these really is that the, the actual mapping that he did aided in the discoveries that he made, some of which won him a Nobel Prize. And so what he did was he basically looked at countless thin slices through brains, brains of all different kinds of species, including humans, and drew what he saw. And by Noticing how individual neurons were oriented in relation to each other, he was able to deduce how these neurons transmit information to one another, which is not something that we understood at the time. So he saw that all the neurons had these sort of thin branching arms coming out of one end called dendrites. And then on the other hand, and they would have one sort of thick arm extending off in the other direction called the axon. And when he mapped out in particular the visual system, he could see that the dendrites were pointed at where the information from the light that would come into your eye was coming from. And then the axon was oriented towards other neurons and back towards the rest of the brain. And so from that, he was able to understand that information flows into the dendrites and then out through the axon. And once he understood that, he could look at all different parts of the brain 
and map out different neural circuits and understand how different types of information were flowing through the brain. And these, these sort of circuit maps and even his maps of individual neurons are still used in neuroscience textbooks today because their message is just so clear and, and they're just so beautiful. I think they really probably help turn budding neuroscientists into actual neuroscientists. Let's discuss the origin of 3D mapping. I understand that during World War II, to prepare for its invasion, the beach of Normandy in France, Britain's Air Force and American military created 3D map. And it was a massively collaborative endeavor, uh, and it included architects, industrial designers, landscape architects, even Hollywood set designers. So how novel was this type of collaboration? And how did it come about? This was really a brand new innovation at the time. I couldn't find any information about what inspired the effort itself. It was all very top secret at the time. So the record is a little spotty, but the allies put together this small group of men, eventually some women when they ran out of men with the right skills that built these 3D scale models of actually hundreds of potential targets for the allies for both ground assaults and bombing raids. Um, they made models of nearly every important battlefield of the war, including the D-Day beaches. Apparently, they scoured their ranks, like you said, for anyone with any kind of relevant experience. So, of course, there were cartographers, architects, surveyors, but also artists, sculptors, painters, and like you said, set designers. I think they had someone from Radio City Music Hall. And so they innovated ways and developed new techniques for constructing these incredibly accurate scale models. They based them on whatever maps they could find, of course, but they didn't always have very recent or accurate maps. So they also used aerial photos. Sometimes those weren't available. So they sent pilots out on these incredibly risky, low-flying flights to take aerial photos of some of those areas that they were looking at. They lost a lot of pilots this way. They, even, they would even use picture postcards that they could find from various cities on, in the areas that they were mapping just to make sure that they could as accurately as possible recreate every aspect of a city and a town and a landscape. Mm-hmm. And these were really important for, for the Allies winning the war, actually. This is fascinating. It's a fascinating story. And what you describe is essentially what 3D maps and maps in general are used for today, which is situational awareness and scenario planning. And we know that many industries like urban design and manufacturing, architecture, engineering, construction, real estate, and the list goes on, use 3D maps in similar ways. Yeah, and they use, you know, virtual uh, landscapes and maps to train soldiers with these days. It's, it's not that different from, from those 3D models that were used to help those soldiers back then. A key theme of your book is how maps depict and inform well beyond the physical environment. And we, so we know that they help us understand information about pandemics like we're experiencing today, economics, climate, business, and so on. An early example of an information map you highlight is of cotton exports. So this concept of economic geography seems like an early example of what I think we'd call today as location intelligence. Using maps to understand not merely where things are, but also kind of provide us a deeper understanding of how location is a window into understanding the context, the behavior of markets, institutions, and people. Can you elaborate on this information-driven location intelligence idea? 
the, the kinds of maps you're describing that show something more than just the physical location of things, social or economic phenomena are um, called thematic maps. Some of the more interesting thematic maps actually show information over time, how things have changed. And the cotton map, the cotton export map that you mentioned is a really cool example of this. And they were actually made by a man named Charles Joseph Menard, who was a Parisian engineer. But Menard also made around 50 maps that are sort of less celebrated, but equally amazing. And they're mostly of what you'd call economic geography. And many of them were flow maps that, that track the movement of products like wine or coal. The maps are a great example of his use of flow lines. So he uses different colored lines between two countries and the color of the line indicates where the goods originated. And then the thickness of the line indicates how much of that product, in this case cotton, was exported between those two countries in a given year. But we, you know, we also have some really interesting recent thematic maps that I think get to some of what you were talking about with location intelligence too, like one done by an Esri cartographer, John Nelson. And he used nighttime satellite imagery to show where there is more light at night um, and where there is less between 2012 and 2016. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful map, but it's also super cool because it, it reflects all these interesting things like the increasing electrification of the rural areas of India. India is just all, all lit up on this map. He uses bright yellow and white to show where lights have grown brighter. And then there's also, you can see in Syria, it's all blue indicating where lights have disappeared during their civil wars. Another recent map that I've written about that's a good example of this is this map of commutes in the United States based on census data by mapping millions of individual people's commutes. They were able to show or reveal what they called mega regions. These are sort of economic zones where different metropolitan areas are tightly tied together economically. And you can see that because of the people traveling between them. And so this could provide all kinds of useful information for like regional transportation planning, um, coordination of uh, economic policies that span state borders. There's all sorts of interesting things that can be done now with digital maps. What do you make of the current pandemic and all the amazing work that's been done in mapping and analytics to understand it and prevent it and manage it? Like, how do you, as a scientist, as a journalist, relate to all that? this is just a really different thing than any of us have ever experienced. So there are tons of maps being made of the pandemic that are, you know, revealing really important location intelligence, you know, mapping things like changes in mobility, testing rates, case numbers, hospitalizations. It all tells you a lot about how the pandemic is progressing, where it's likely to be a problem in the future, where we lack the resources for, you know, you see increase in cases, there's going to be an increase in hospitalizations following that. And if there's not enough ICU beds in that area, that that's important information. But I think maps are also really helping people to engage with this situation and understand what's happening during this pandemic. This is a new phenomenon. We've never experienced before a truly real-time, truly global crisis that has people just desperately seeking data and information. And a lot of them are finding it on maps. On one of your previous podcasts, you interviewed the woman behind the Johns Hopkins COVID dashboard. She mentioned that that site is getting billions of requests every day. Billions. That's incredible. She said 
Many of those requests are, of course, coming from researchers pulling data from their site to, to feed their own visualizations or analyses. But I'm sure there are still tons of them that are from regular people just trying to find reliable information. I know that I was one of those people, especially during the first few months of the pandemic. That's the first site I would visit every day. And I think this also shows that people are just often more comfortable getting their information from a map than in a lot of other formats. Putting information on a map, I think, just makes it real for people and also sort of lends it authenticity or maybe authority. That's in my last question. If you had all the resources and power available to you to put behind a cause, where would you focus? Oh, wow. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Gosh, there's so many places where mapping and data viz could really make a difference. But one I think that's been on people's minds a lot lately is socioeconomic inequality and racial disparities. Uh, there's such a rich history of people using maps to highlight these kinds of social issues like Charles Booth's maps in the late 19th century that showed there were far more people living in poverty in London than people thought, or the Hull House maps in Chicago by Florence Kelly. She was mapping nationalities against income in slum neighborhoods. Some of Bill Bungie's maps from the 1960s are good examples, like the famous one where he mapped out in Detroit where Black children were being hit by commuters. It can really sort of make a real impact. We can still see the results of the shadow, I guess, of redlining maps in the segregation of cities today. So. There's a lot of work going on today in this area, but I think there's definitely a need for more. And I think these kinds of maps are just very persuasive. And so I think that's probably where I'd put my money. Betsy, it's been a true pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, I've enjoyed this so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to journalist and author Betsy Mason for sharing her insights about the importance and impact of data visualization. To learn more about location intelligence, smart maps, and data visualization, visit esri.com.